Well, last we left the story of Peter, he had just had his stunning and dramatic fall after promising to Jesus that uh, no matter who else fell away, he never would. Three times he denied Jesus before the rooster crowed, just that Jesus had told him he would. But the story left us with hope because it was in that moment that Peter caught the gaze of Jesus and taking the whole story into context, of course, how the story will would go on, uh, we posited that this gaze of Jesus was not a condemnation, but a loving gaze of forgiveness. Suggested that uh, when you know someone really well, communication can happen through gazes, through looks, through glances, not simply through words. And the belief here is that Peter had seen this kind of gaze before. And of course, it <clears throat> struck him deep in his heart. It said he went off and he wept bitterly. So now, as we continue in this story uh, from John chapter 21 that was read earlier for you, we want to see how then does Peter lean into this forgiveness that Jesus offers? And considering that, we get to answer a question for us, that is, as regular sinners, as people prone to rebellion and wandering away from uh, the life that Jesus calls us to, how do we lean into his forgiveness of us? This is critically important to the Christian faith and to our Christian walk of discipleship. And what we see is that it starts with this idea of repentance. Repentance is, uh, to define the word pretty literally, a 180 degree turn uh, and to begin to face in a new direction and then also to begin to walk in a new direction. So there's a involved in repentance an acknowledgement and admission that we were headed in the wrong direction and a volitional turning and a moving in the right direction. It is not just an intellectual ascent. It is uh, a, a, an engagement, a faithful move into the right direction. Of course, repentance, as we talk about it in faith, is an awareness of our sinfulness, uh, either our collective sinfulness or our individual acts of sin and rebellion, an acknowledgement of it and uh, an ability, a willingness, a faithful action of not just saying it was wrong, but actually turning away from it and moving towards Jesus again. And what we see in Peter is exactly this. We began to see it at the end of the story last week when he weeps bitterly. It's this bitter weeping that we get a sense of Peter's finally acknowledging the ineptitude of his self-effort and his self confidence. That is that try as hard as he may to follow Jesus, what inevitably seems to happen is self-serving and the practical or literal denial of Jesus. And Peter's not just aware that it has happened, he's aware of the effects that it has had. The effects that it has had on Jesus, who is 
undergoing the beating that will lead to his crucifixion, taking on the pain of all sin. And then also the effects that it has had on others and on himself, that it has separated him from Christ, that it has uh, caused uh, violence in some way to, to his, himself, his spirit, uh, his flesh, and then also to relationships. We see this as the result of sin from the beginning of God's story in Genesis when Adam and Eve rebel and move away from God. Peter's bitter weeping gives uh, emotional value or, or validity to this internal understanding of his brokenness. He's finally willing to acknowledge it. As we said last week, this is the beginning. This is the beginning of the restore, restoration that God intends for us. We must come to the end of ourself, uh, figuratively, holistically, but even consistently, moment by moment, acknowledging through repentance our brokenness, our sinfulness, our missteps, um, our wandering away from Christ. So here we have Peter in his bitter weeping, uh, acknowledging this. Now we pick up the story uh, in John chapter 21. We continue to see this happening. And did you find it interesting <clears throat> that uh, as Peter is about to jump off the boat and go hardcore for Jesus, it says he puts his garments on. Now, I don't know about you, but anytime I've jumped into water or jumped into a pool or, or intended to swim in some way, I've never put more <laughs> clothes on. Uh, historically speaking, in that day, it would be fairly common to fish uh, in what amounts to your underwear. Now, the boys and I have just started to kind of get into fishing. Tyler and Jack have been interested in it. I'm a complete novice, so not a great teacher for them. We're all learning together. One rule we do have is that we do not fish in our underwear, but apparently in that day, because of the heat, because of the, uh, the, the late laborious nature of things, uh, this was fairly common. So it would make sense to put his garments on, but would it make sense to put his garments on to jump into the water? Probably not. What might the storyteller be trying to point us to here? And I think there's incredible echoes again from the Garden of Eden, from Adam and from Eve. Peter representing the, the fallen, the sinful nature of humanity who has denied Jesus, has gone in his own way, now uh, is in essence naked and aware of it. And before he goes to Jesus, he puts on this outer garment that is to cover his nakedness. If you remember in the garden, after Adam and Eve's rebellion, they became aware of their nakedness and they hid. They attempted to cover themselves from God. Could it be that narratively speaking in this story, uh, John is wanting to draw up imagery from that. We know that John loves to connect everything back to the garden. In many ways, John's gospel is about the new creation that Jesus <clears throat> is bringing to the earth. And so here you have Peter in a very Adam-like 
a Genesis chapter 3 fashion, covering up his nakedness. But what is distinct from Peter, as opposed to Adam and Eve in the garden, is that whereas Adam and Eve hide from God, Peter jumps in the water and goes hard after God. Again, water in Genesis language, speaking of separation between man and God. Jesus, excuse me, Peter acknowledges this separation. He acknowledges the presence of Jesus, but he goes hard after him. We see in this not just a simple awareness of his shame, but a repentance, a turning, a going towards Jesus that is happening here in the life of Peter. It's important for us to acknowledge this, that Jesus is there first and foremost, right? Peter isn't searching for Jesus. Jesus has come and has found Peter in the same way that God had found Adam and Eve in the garden. But Peter acknowledges Jesus' presence and he goes after him. This is repentance in beautiful narrative fashion. What about you? How do you respond to the presence and the reality of brokenness, of sinfulness, of rebellion in your life? Certainly on the whole, but in the day-to-day, the reality. How do you make repentance a regular part of your rhythm? I've shared before, one of the things that I do is I follow uh, an old, kind of ancient, ancient church uh, prayer. It's called the Prayer of Examine, uh, and that sounds super fancy, and uh, perhaps it was then. How I do it is, is not quite so fancy. But every night, uh, I'm imperfect at doing this every night, but my intention is that every night as I lay down in the bed, I attempt to think about the day that has preceded this time of rest and to ask the Lord to show me the ways in which I have denied him or have gone in my own direction or have acted in rebellion towards him. It gives me pause to attempt to adopt a posture of repentance. Uh, John also writes in his letter, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, uh, pretty, pretty famously, many of you are familiar with this, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us. And the word confess is the Greek word homologeo, logeo, to say, homo, the same. And so what homologeo, this idea of confession actually means, is to say the same thing as God. It is that we are confessing our sins. We are agreeing with God about the state of our heart and the specifics of our action. What confession does is it gives us a moment to pursue the posture of repentance. It seeks to offer us opportunity to feel the weight of our sin. If you've received the gospel, has Jesus forgiven you of 
your sins? Can anything be held against you? The answer is yes, he's forgiven you. And no, nothing can be held against you. So what is the purpose of confession? To daily, uh, to daily regain uh, your salvation? No, but it is to moment by moment or day by day reapply your salvation. That is to recenter yourself on Christ. And to take this posture of repentance that allows us to lean into the loving forgiveness that Jesus offers us in his gaze. That enables us to continually be reconciled and restored. The transformation that Jesus offers. Hey, is there a sin that you are particularly struggling with in life right now? What would it mean for you to adopt a posture of confession and repentance? Or, as you're going through life, what would it mean for you to adopt a posture of confession and repentance as a regular rhythm of life that allows you to lean in to the transformation that happens in the forgiveness of God? Here, narratively, Peter gives us the perfect example, feeling the weight of his sin, acknowledging his brokenness, acknowledging his shame, but not hiding from God, instead leaning into and pursuing Jesus vigorously in the midst of his shame. And look what happens. The first thing that happens is reconciliation. Peter experiences this in uh, stunning and dramatic fashion, to use the same language of his denials. There's some incredible reversals that happen in this passage uh, that should stop us in our tracks and cause us to praise God uh, profusely for his grace and his mercy, not just in the life of Peter, but also in the life, the livelihood of humanity and in our lives. In Mark's gospel, uh, Mark is careful and Mark tells the story um, almost verbatim from Peter. Uh, historians, theologians have, have long believed that Mark gets his gospel firsthand from Peter. And Mark ends his gospel in the resurrection and at the resurrection the women have gone and the tomb is empty and the angel says to the women speaks directly for Jesus he says tell the disciples and tell Peter that I will meet them in Galilee incredible isn't it that Jesus long before hearing any apologetic words from Peter or, or pleas for forgiveness, wants Peter to know by name that Jesus is coming to be with him. In John chapter 21, this promise is fulfilled. Incredible reversal, is it not? Peter's denials are all about Peter's promise to Jesus that he can't fulfill. The story here ends with Jesus' promise to Peter that he will come and he will be with him, that he's forgiven, completely fulfilled. And look how it happens. A charcoal fire Jesus is standing by. And this should immediately draw echoes and allusions to the denial of Peter, which also happens fireside, does it not? By the fire, the, the servant girl says to Peter, surely you were with him. And Peter gives his first denial of Jesus. 
And now here by a fire that Jesus has kindled, Peter's going to be welcomed back into relationship with Jesus, reconciled, and then ultimately restored. Again, we talked about this idea of creation being significant to the Apostle John and how he writes his gospel. So pick up on how this story goes as well. Peter's denials happen fireside, yes, but they happen at night in darkness. Again, night and darkness sort of have this sinister overtone in scriptures. They kind of speak of death. They speak of rebellion. They speak of separation. Jesus' fire is stoked at the dawn of a new day, early in the morning. This is resurrection language. Early on the first day of the new week, the tomb of Jesus was empty. He stokes the charcoal fire early in the morning, whereas fireside in the evening lead to the denials of Jesus by Peter. Fireside in the morning leads to the reconciliation of Peter by Jesus. This is new creation language. About stories like this, the Apostle Paul would later say, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone. The new is here. This fireside reversal is dramatic narrative proof of this reality. And Peter or Jesus says to the disciples, bring the fish, let's eat together. Now listen, sharing a meal is wonderful at any point. And sharing a meal bonds people. We might not uh, be fully aware of this, but it does. It bonds people. But especially in that day and in that culture, to share a table, to share a meal with someone was to acknowledge them as friends, to receive them, to be willing to be socially lumped with them. Table fellowship was incredibly important. And so here Jesus is inviting all of the disciples and Peter into table fellowship, a beautiful story of forgiveness and reconciliation and unity. You might remember the last table fellowship they had is where Jesus said, later on tonight, all of you will betray me and run away from me. Think about this dramatic and stunning reversal that happens in reconciliation. A table fellowship that leads to the disciples running from Jesus now becomes a table fellowship where Jesus draws the disciples back to himself. And then let's think specifically about Peter. The story writer, the Apostle John here, is careful to tell us that the boat is not far from shore before Peter and the disciples come to Jesus. And they hear someone yelling for them, but they have no idea who it is. Says they don't recognize Jesus. But then when they finally believe it might be him, and Peter runs to him, then the story ends with Jesus and Peter in a very intimate relational moment, walking on the shore, speaking of love and affection for one another. Do you see what reconciliation does? 
it restores by dramatic reversal an intimacy with Jesus. Whereas in the beginning of the story, Peter can't even recognize him. At the end of the story, he's declaring his undying love for him. And Jesus is embracing him. Our repentance, our willingness to acknowledge our brokenness, to lean into the loving forgiveness of Jesus, opens up this dramatic experience of reconciliation. Listen, if you've never believed this gospel before, that Jesus has taken the penalty for your brokenness, for your rebellion, for your sinfulness, and through his cross, he has felt the weight of that. Through his resurrection, he has won the final victory over sin and death, therefore also your sin and death. And that if you, if you repent and place your faith and trust in him, you will be forgiven of all your sins and you will have this reconciliation. If, if you've never done that before, can, can I plead with you to do it? now and to experience the life that God has always promised and intended for his people. But if you've already done this, it's not an over and done thing. Certainly you've secured a permanent union with Jesus. The scriptures are clear about that. But there still can be distance. There still can be loss of intimacy. We experience this in our life all of the time. And the way to regain that intimacy with God is through confession and repentance that, lean, that, that leads to this continual experience of reconciliation. It's why we say the gospel is not a one-time thing in the past. It's an everyday, every-moment reality for the people of God, the followers of Jesus. Are you daily reveling in the reconciling work of Jesus, the dramatic reversals that he has done in your life by coming close to you and winning the great battle over sin and death. We call this being daily saturated in the gospel. That is finding time within your rhythm to sit in the truth of what Jesus has done. Not simply your rebellion and the weight of it, but the great reversals that Jesus has won for you. This should be part of your regular rhythm of life. I would suggest to you it should be several times part of it every day. I mentioned to you that one of the ways I try to lean into repentance is through a prayer of examine at the end of the day. Imperfectly, one of the ways I try to lean into this gospel saturation, this feeling, the reconciliation of Jesus is at the beginning of the day because it reminds me of the resurrection, because it reminds me of stories like this, that the dawn of a new day is the birth of new creation, but also practically because it's the start of a new day and I need to be reminded is that after I'm awake and no longer completely groggy, I attempt to sit and process mentally through the great reversals that Jesus has won in my life. The great reconciliation. That though I was an enemy, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, 
I have become a son and a daughter because of the great love of God. That though I couldn't recognize Jesus, now I walk arm in arm with him. That though I was a rebel, excuse me, a rebel, the Father has welcomed me home and, and has, has presented a great feast and has lovingly forgiven me. I am honest about my shame and honest about my brokenness, but I am also honest and open, again, agreeing with God about the glory of Jesus and what he has done for me, taking time to sit in this, to remind yourself of this, is transformative in your life. And that's why it leads to restoration, this final thing that happens in this story, that ultimately Peter is fully restored, that is transformed, restored back into the calling that Jesus had on his life. Now you find it interesting that here at the very end of John's gospel, in some way, Peter has gone back to his old way of life. That is, he's back being a fisherman in, in and on the Sea of Galilee. You ever ask yourself, why is that? Well, surely Jesus had said, wait for me in Galilee. But at some level, it has to be true that Peter is thinking to himself, yes, Jesus is risen. And yes, He is everything we'd hoped he was. And yes, he has won a great victory over sin and death. But surely, I must be disqualified. I mean, my very public and very dramatic fall, my denial, surely it must disqualify me from the place, the role I was to play in the forward move of the kingdom of God. I praise God that he's won this victory in my life over sin and death and that I will be with him forever. But this role that he had called me to play, surely I must be disqualified from it. And what we have here in this story is through a retelling and a rewriting of Peter's story. Jesus fully restores him. In fact, says, you are not disqualified. You are the same one that I have called, and you have a significant role to play in my kingdom. What do I mean he retells and rewrites his story? Look at what happens here. Before any of this happens, Jesus tells the disciples who have caught no fish to cast their net on the other side, and they have an abundant catch. Of course, we remember this is how we started the whole series on Peter, with Jesus calling out uh, to Peter to go cast the, put the boats out again and cast the nets out again, even though they had caught nothing. And of course, they had an abundant catch. Jesus is reminding Peter of this significant moment in his life. It's at that moment that uh, Jesus said to Peter, you're not going to catch fish anymore. You're going to catch men. That is, you have a significant role to play in my kingdom. In making this story happen again, 
Jesus is drawing to Peter's mind exactly what he had called him to. And look at Peter's response after being a called person. He goes hard for Jesus, even though there's a water barrier. Another great moment of Peter, when in the midst of the storm, Peter gets out of the boat and goes to where Jesus is because that's the right place, the safe place to be. Again, though not walking on water, his faith in action to go for Jesus is here. These two incredible storylines of faith in Peter's life are once again dramatically retold by Jesus in this storyline, affirming his intention to restore Peter that he still had an incredible role to play in the forward move of the kingdom of God. And then when Peter is ashore and after they have eaten, Jesus takes him aside. And three times he asks him, do you love me? What is Jesus doing here? He's not asking these questions because he doesn't know the answer. Jesus knows the answer. He knows that Peter loves him. He knows that Peter is repentant. He knows that Peter wants to be restored. This is not for Jesus' sake. He doesn't need to be convinced of Peter's affection for him. This is for Peter. This is gracious by Jesus. This is an an act by Jesus to reaffirm, to re-solidify, to re-center Peter on Christ and on his calling. And that he does it three times, each time with more strength and oomph than the last. He is quite certainly rewriting the three denials of Peter just previously in the story, which had come each time with more strength and more oomph. Do you see the gracious work of Jesus to transform and rebuild the heart and the life of Peter? Friends, this is what Jesus intends to do and is doing in my life and in your life. And while you may not be Peter on this rock, I will build my church. You are a living stone, Peter reminds us in his letter to the church, upon which Christ is building his temple and his kingdom. In other words, you, like Peter, have a significant role to play in the forward move of the kingdom of God. Your rebellion, your brokenness, your sinfulness, your proneness to wander away from the the ways of Jesus have not disqualified you. Through repentance and through the experience of reconciliation, you have been and are being restored. Friends, you have an important role to play in your family, in your spheres of influence, in your circles of friends, where you eat, where you play. You are not there by accident. God has providentially placed you because you, you have a significant role to place. And while like Peter, you might feel like you're the wrong person for the job, haven't you seen God what I'm capable of? 
perhaps today God is reminding you, no, I've called you. And I know exactly what I'm doing when I call you. You don't live where you live or work where you work or engage where you engage or connect where you connect simply by chance. But by my providence, that my kingdom might continue to be built. Do you believe that, church? There is a call on your life. Imagine if Peter had rejected this reaffirmation of his call. Imagine the impact that it would have had on the kingdom. No Acts 2. No preaching at Pentecost. No great ingathering. No first and second Peter letters to the church. No apostolic ministry from Peter, which was significant throughout the church. Now ask for a minute, what if you don't embrace God's unique calling on your life? You might say, well, it's nothing like if Peter hadn't. And I might say to you, well, what about your circle of friends? About where you work, where you live, where you play, where you engage, where you connect? What living testimony is there to God's loving forgiveness, his gaze upon all of humanity, if not for you? Peter's being recommissioned, and so are we. Every single day, God recommissions us after the struggle of the day before. Will you embrace it? And listen, the restoring work of Jesus in our life, we should just say this before we move on, is painful. And at times it's laborious. And at times it's incredibly challenging. It was not easy for Peter to take this walk with Jesus. All of the disciples were probably huddled up elsewhere saying, man, I wonder what the heck Jesus is saying to this guy. Oh my goodness. Or, wow, stinks to be Peter right now. Or, yep, there's Jesus correcting Peter again. There's some humiliation that happens. But in essence, if we're to grow, we have to acknowledge our shortcomings. And there must have been pain for it in Peter. You hear it in his voice when he says, Master, Rabbi, you know that I love you. And yet Jesus continues to ask the question. Will you, like Peter, lean into the restorative work of God in your life? Even if it's painful? Even if it means other people get to witness some of it? Or even speak into it? Even if it's lengthy? Even if it's time-consuming? Even if God seems to be teaching you the same thing over and over and over again, or asking you the same question over and over and over again, he's building you up. He's transforming you. The pruning work of God is painful at times, but it is always transforming. This long and painful conversation with Jesus prepared Peter for what was next. 
See, repentance that leads to reconciliation, that enables restoration, that is transformation in our life, is not just a second by second, oops, I'm sorry, I screwed up again, and moving on. Mm -mm. There can't be transformation there. Because there's not real honest assessment of what's going on but a willingness to acknowledge our shame, to sit in the pain and the separation of our sin. To consider deeply the reconciling, stunning reversals that Jesus has won through his death and resurrection and are now true in our life. And to attempt to apply them to how we live and why we live. And then the daily grind the hard work of walking with Jesus, the sometimes painful restorative work, are you willing to engage, to lean in, to be transformed by Jesus? This is where true life happens. This is where transformation occurs. This is what Jesus is calling us to. Here, once again, Peter beautifully portrays the state of humanity. Naked, broken, and ashamed. But Jesus is present, calling us in a forgiving voice. Will you hide from him, or will you jump into the water and go hard after him, even in the midst of your shame? Will you embrace the reconciliation day by day, moment by moment, the dramatic reversals that Jesus has already won but constantly need to be applied to our life? Will you take the time in your rhythm of life to think deeply on them, to consider them, to apply them to how you live? Will you do the hard work, uh, the painful work of leaning in to the transforming restoration that Jesus is doing in your life? And will you embrace again the mission that God has called you on to announce through your words and through how you live your life the forgiveness, the grace, the mercy that God is offering to all the world, the stunning reversals. Can I pray with you? God, thank you for Peter. And thank you for all of my friends here gathered with me. Might we too be people known by our repentance, reconciliation, and restoration. We acknowledge that this is done not through us, but because you are proximate and present and have won a great victory. Help us by the power of your spirit to lean into that and be changed people, we pray. Amen.